Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Awareness to Action. Today I'm joined by Angie Burleson. Angie is a community development specialist and polarity therapist committed to changing the conversation surrounding substance use and mental health. Angie's work is inspired and informed by her own struggle with addiction, her family experiences, and her education. Angie is founder of Arizona Recovers, a recovery community organization which provides harm reduction-based peer support, community, and prevention and is also project director of AZ Adverse Childhood Experiences Consortium. Angie has so much wisdom to share. I truly think we could have talked for hours. Instead, we talked about a lot in a short amount of time. Community storytelling, setting boundaries, overcoming shame, social determinants of health, and making change at the policy level. You'll hear a few moments of strange audio throughout this episode. It sounds like someone's typing, but I promise we were fully engaged in conversation. We just had a faulty mic on one end of our Zoom call. It's worth powering through to hear Angie's perspective on some really interesting topics. I hope you'll feel as inspired as I did by her words. Okay, Angie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with you telling our listeners a little bit about the work that you do? So I have a nonprofit called Arizona Recovers. We work on changing the conversation around substance use disorder, mental health, and trauma. And we do that through educational workshops and events, um, peer support, uh, homeless outreach, and also um, public health-focused addiction policy. So you stay pretty busy to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously you do a lot for your community. I'd love for you to tell our listeners about what brought you into this work. Well, I like, I like to joke that addiction has been in my life since in utero, but it's, um, it's pretty true from family members, um, to being in recovery myself, my, um, one of my daughters struggled with substance use disorder as a teenager. Um, and, um, really just addiction has played an underlying role in my life, you know, up until now. And, um, years ago, I realized when my daughter was struggling that a lot of people had shame around substance use disorder and addiction. And I didn't actually understand why it had been so normal for me. I thought it was normal for everyone. Um, And so I kind of accidentally started this work um, by um, doing a community event for parents um, to help them understand that they weren't alone and to help them connect with other parents who had children who were struggling with substance use disorder to understand that, you know, we were all people and that it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a moral failing on our children's part um, or on our part. 
that um, there are reasons behind substance use and um, and there's reasons why, you know, some develop a substance use disorder and some can use, you know, quote unquote responsibly. And so it's just kind of, that's kind of what brought me into this whole arena. I love that. I love that you weren't even, I don't know, maybe this isn't the right way to say it, but that you weren't even aware that shame needed to be a part of the equation and were then able to make a difference in that way. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I really was. It was, um, I, I just didn't quite get it. I didn't quite, um, I didn't quite get why um, they felt so shameful over things. And, and maybe it was because in part, I had my own struggles with substance use disorder and I was in recovery myself. And so not only did I get to understand it from the outside perspective of living with family members who struggled with it, but then also having struggled it with, with it myself and coming through it, I think it gives, you know, that, that kind of little extra added perspective um, that can really empathize with not only the family's journey, but also the person who's struggling's journey and the disconnect between the two, um, you know, kind of filling that gap that doesn't always get to get filled. I can imagine so many ways that not, I don't know, resting in shame would enable you to build bridges and connect. Do you ever feel like it's a hindrance. I mean, if, if somebody is so in that place of feeling shame, do you ever feel like you being in the place where you're not feeling that prevents a connection? Shame prevents connection. And that's, yeah. and that's why I do what I do, right. Is, is to help others um, understand that there's no reason for the shame to be there. Um, that it's, you know, it's not that they're inherently bad as a person, um, that we may have made bad choices along the way, but that doesn't change um, the core of who you are, that you're not intrinsically bad, right? Shame is driven from that I am intrinsically bad motivation. And shame is the one thing that actually blocks connection. And so we can't actually connect with people until they do move out of that space where they can see just that tad bit of opening of, oh, wait, maybe I'm not intrinsically bad, right? Maybe there is hope for me. That's that one little spot, that kind of sweet spot that you have to actually make that connection and, and make a change. It's, it's the whole reason I do what I do. Brene Brown writes a lot. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Not enough great words for, for her. Um, but she makes a really important distinction between guilt and shame and guilt being, and I'm sure you already know this, but for those who aren't familiar, guilt being the thing that tells us, ooh, that, that wasn't good or what I did wasn't really how I want to act in the future and is an important tool to know how we want to move forward, whereas shame is I'm bad. I'll always be bad. And that's it. It's never helpful ever. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and unfortunately in, you know, the addiction realm, um, they're receiving those messages all across the board, right? Especially if you have, especially if you're um, working with people who have tried recovery before, you know, tried to get into recovery before and maybe it didn't work and they've had a reoccurrence of use, it kind of, it continues to drive that shame-based um, mantra that lives inside their head that 
says that I'm that it's hopeless and that I'm worthless and um, and why even try then? So you're addressing this as an individual and also as a part of an organization, and that's Arizona Recovers. And Arizona Recovers focuses on three pillars that guide all of the work and the services offered. And those are changing the conversation, empowering individuals, and connecting the community. So I would love it if you could tell us about the process for selecting those pillars and what each one looks like in practice. Yeah, absolutely. So it was um, it was never really a selection of pillars, so to say. Um, you know, we, I, I in and inadvertently um, am doing what I am doing now. I, I did not set out like, oh, I have this great idea, and this is what I think we need to do. It it honestly um, was. I see these families hurting. And I know that I can bring a perspective to this and um, I would like to do something um, for this whole entire community and what can I do? And along the way um, that developed into what we do now. And so um, through that journey of really, you know, four to five years um, of developing it um, and really, you know, doing the work, it was, what exactly are we trying to do? And number one has always been changing the conversation, changing the conversation from substance use disorder um, being a moral failing um, to substance use disorder is a symptom of a much greater issue at hand, right? We've always had that underlying um, foundation of understanding trauma and understanding, um, you know, what, how that works within our system and how substances are a absolutely amazing um, coping mechanism for a very short period of time. Um, and and when we understand how addictions develop, when we understand what the root causes of them are, when we understand what the root causes of mental health issues are, um, how trauma plays a part in every single one of them, you know, then we can recognize that we need to actually shift that conversation, right? If um, you know nobody grows up thinking, oh, you know, when I get older, I'm going to have substance use disorder. And granted, the majority of us that lived with people who had substance use disorder had parents, it was the exact opposite. When I grow up, I'm not going to be anything like them, right? Because I can see that damage. And then all of a sudden we develop a substance use disorder ourselves. And it's like, well, 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 wait, wait, <laughs> you know, like this is, this was not what we were going to do. This is not what we were going to be. How could this happen? And in understanding how it happened, right. And understanding what made us more susceptible to it. Um, you know, why our bodies maybe ch chose that path, um, and others didn't, um, it helps us to understand what conversations we should be having, which is, you know, having that conversation that, um, you know, trauma plays a underlying role in the vast majority of substance use disorder, the vast majority of mental health issues. And if that is the case, then why aren't we having the conversation of how do we support people in a way that is best for them? instead of in the way that we think 
that we should be supporting them, right? And so being able to have that kind of conversation to, to, um, to change the way that people are thinking about things. Um, because when we can change the way that maybe they see things, maybe they think of things, understanding that every person has their own story behind them and that we all think the way that we think because of our stories that are behind us, that if we give them a different perspective, that maybe they have an emotional attachment to we're really able to change minds and change what we're doing, right? And then um, empowering individuals. When you have a substance use disorder, when you have a mental health issue, when you have trauma in your in your background, um, it's a very powerless and hopeless feeling. And I don't believe that anybody is hopeless, that there's, you know, not a redeemable um, space and absolutely everyone it is, it is getting them to see that space, right? That one that we just talked about before that, that piece, that little, that little moment in time where they say, hmm. Maybe there is hope for me and finding a service, finding a support that actually helps them, that they can connect with, um, that they feel safe and they don't feel judgment in. And um, the ability to make change when you're in that kind of safe space. Um, and then connecting communities. Everything starts at the community level everything you know if you want to make national change you have to start at your own personal community it's actually how policy is made right the community is going to drive the state policies the state drive policies are going to drive the federal policies and um and every person goes back to their community if you don't have a healthy community to come back to um then you don't have as much support as you could have um, and communities historically have always been there to help each other. We all want to see our own community flourish. We all want to see our own community grow, right? We have children in that community. We want those children to grow up and in a healthy space. Um, and, and so we all have an investment in our own community. And, but a lot of times those communities have become, um, especially in recent years, you know, completely disconnected from each other, where everybody goes into their house, closes their door, they don't know their neighbors, they don't know what services are within their community. Um, you know, community leaders want to help, they don't know what services are in, they don't even know sometimes what their own community members are struggling with. If you can take that approach to the community, right, and empower that community and connect those communities, um, then we just have, a, we build a stronger support system all across the board. I love hearing you talk about the change that happens at the community level and how, I mean, as, as a person who lives in a community, as we all do, I know, I feel like I know a lot of the resources and services that are around me, but I don't know all of them. And it's a game changer when we open our eyes and look at the services that are around us, because there are so many people doing such good work, making those connections. And that brings me to what I want to ask about next, which is social determinants of health, because I know that's a huge part of your work. And I want to get into what those mean and how they connect to this. So first, can you just define what a social determinant of health is? So the social determinants of health are really looking at, at all of the supports that a person has around them, um, job, 
housing security, um, food security, um, what kind of community support do they have? What kind of family support do they have? Do they have access to medical care? It's really looking at those kind of foundational principles that some of us take for granted um, and, um, and really focusing on those pieces and building up those pieces around that person so that if we have something that goes wrong in life, which we all do, right? <laughs> because we're human um, and, and really bad things happen to us. I mean, COVID is, um, <clears throat> COVID is, has been, I think the best understanding that, um, that we could have of number one, how connected we are as people um, as a society, and number two, um, how vulnerable we are as a population, and really look at those, um, how big an impact social determinants of health have on us, right? Um, when we take away job and employment security, what does that look like for the person? Um, the toilet paper, you know, shortage across the thing, which, you know, we, we all joked about on social media and everything, but really, you know, it was, it was a snapshot into what does it look like for those populations that don't have access to food on an everyday basis, right? They don't have a grocery store in their neighborhood. They don't have a car. Um, that they you know that they can drive to a grocery store outside and what does what does that look like for us and so social determinants of health is really taking into account what are all the um, the different dynamics in a person's life um, foundationally um, that we need to pay attention to in order for them to have a strong foundation for growth and recovery so when you were talking about changing the conversation, you talked about the importance of the stories that we carry and of sharing our stories. And I imagine that a helpful piece of making the broader community aware of social determinants of health would be sharing our stories and sharing how those determinants have been a part of our lives. I mean, do you feel that at all? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think sharing our stories is probably one of the most impactful things that we can do. Um, you know, we're humans and humans do things that they're emotionally connected to. It, they just do. It's, it's how we function. It's how we work um, as a human being. And we become emotionally connected things to things that we can put a face and a name to, right? And, and, you know, reading a story about something and seeing a headline and words on paper is a little bit different than a person sharing their individual story. And you can see the pain in the fa their face. You can see the pain, hear the pain in their voice. Um, you can understand that they look just like you and that they're a human just like you with all the same struggles just like you and and understand how important that piece was that maybe that you just hadn't thought about before you know maybe you've never been in a place that you didn't have a well i would say circle k but you're in virginia you didn't have a gas station you know on every corner um where you didn't have a grocery store you know within a couple miles that you could go to um you know, that you don't understand that, you know, their nearest grocery store may be an hour and a hour away um, and they don't have transportation. 
there's not a bus service. They don't have money for a taxi. What does it even look like taking a taxi to a grocery store and feeding a family of five, right? How much groceries can you get? You know, those kinds of things, you know, you understand that through people's stories and, um, and people sharing what that kind of impact looks like to them. That creates that emotional connection to want to make the change. And being able to hear those stories requires us to ask questions and be ready for learning and bring our empathy to the forefront. And that can be intimidating, but it's crucial to to building those connections and to understanding life experiences that are so different from our own. And I, I feel like you could never count the amount of times that a person says, I never understood what that was like, or I never got that until now. And it's usually at the end of somebody sharing their lived experience, because we really just cannot understand, we'll never fully understand a, a story that's different from our own, but we gain a better understanding when people are brave enough to share and we're brave enough to listen. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. And that's, um, you know, that's natural. We only know what we know, right? And we only know what we've experienced. And so if you haven't experienced it, how are you supposed to know? You know what I mean? Um, I think we've, we used to, um, when we think back historically, story sharing was crucial for that community, right? And that, um, that was, that kept a community safe. It also kept a community connected and, and we've lost that um, along the way. Do you have ideas or ways that we can build communities that are quicker to share their stories or where that's more of an instinct? Well, you're doing that. That's what you're doing. Having the podcast, True. you know what I mean? Is that you're, you're helping yeah. people share their, share their stories. You have that willingness and that open openness to um, listening. And so do your listeners. Otherwise they, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be here through that. I think, you know, when we make things more of a norm um, where things aren't so scary, the more, the more people share, the more that people are comfortable sharing, right? I always, I always tell people when they share for the first time, like, you know, thank you for doing that because you just gave permission to somebody else to do the same thing, right? It is, it is where we have, we have become so disconnected that it's almost like we're, we're, you know, toddlers learning how to walk all over again and we have to keep practicing. But as we practice, we get so much, we get so much better at it. And, um, and, you know, doing things like this, um, you know, having, if you have a local paper or, you know, a local Facebook page and you're sharing stories of the community members um, that are there, you know, having those, those kinds of things helps everyone to realize that we're all just human and <laughs> we're all doing the best that we can, right, with the resources that we have at the time. Absolutely. Well said. Angie, I'd love for you to speak to how, you know, we've now talked about, well, I'll use, I'll use the words from our title. We've talked about the, that awareness of social determinants, but what does it really look like in your work to be addressing those determinants and, and focusing on those in order to, to build true healing? 
Well, one is to, for us in particular, is, you know, we work with substance use disorder and um, we don't require abstinence to receive services. Um, and so even having that, that small piece there, right, to take that symptom out of the equation, we're not going to address that symptom. We want to look at the other pieces um, and having the awareness of trauma. Um, what childhood trauma, how childhood trauma affects adult health, um, how it affects behavior. Um, when we look at those kinds of things and when we meet people with an open mind, an open heart, no judgment, um, and offer them a safe place to be who they are in the moment that we're at, right? We're not expecting them to be anybody else than who they are and who they are right now is absolutely perfect. And because that person has gotten them to this point, you know, they're still alive. They're still breathing and talking and, um, and living every single day. And so whatever has brought them to this point, um, as human beings, we're all wired for survival. So the body has done a good job to get them there and to recognize, you know, that we all have different skills in life. We all have different life skills and, um, and we all have different supports around us. And so, um, you know, meeting them where they're at, having that be okay and not wanting them to be anywhere else than they are right now, um, but really, truly having that be okay. And then asking, how can we best support you? How can we best assist you? How can we come alongside you? Um, as you, you know, take the next steps is, is absolutely crucial in, in our work and, and really making change. But I feel that way, honestly, for everything, whether we're dealing with someone with substance use disorder, whether we're trying to change a community, you know, when we're looking at connecting a community, every community is where they're at in time because of the things that have happened to that community up until that point. If we want to make change in that community, we have to understand why that community is where it's at, what things have brought that community to that place, um, and, and ask, you know, what would we like to change? Are there things that we'd like to change and how can we best serve you and best help you to make that change? Right. It's kind of the, the same thing. It's really taking the moral failing out of everything. And how powerful to have an approach that meets the person where they're at and says, let's, let's do this together. Let's move forward in a way that's led by you that I can support you in. I think that just feels really, really important to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we think about things too much, <laughs> you know, um, how would I want someone to treat me if I was really struggling with someone, you know, how would I want my husband to treat me? How would I want, you know, my best friend to treat me? Would I want um, to go to my best friend or my husband with a problem and say, and have them say, well, this is what you need to do. And you should just do this without actually taking the time to listen. You know, we don't want that. And, but we do that in our system, right? We do that in our system of care. And then they don't follow what we tell them they should do. And we tell them that they've failed in that system of care. But we never actually took the time to listen to them to begin with. Does that make sense? 
And when we look at that kind of social determinants of health, we're taking that time to listen. What are those pieces that you need? Um, what are the pieces that you have? Celebrate the pieces that they do have, you know, and make it more of an individual approach. And that's completely and totally doable. Um, completely and totally doable that we, you know, it w once we're connected and we have those resources, like you said, you know where the resources are in your community. Once you have that connection, it's really easy to say, you know, hey, Casey, I'm really good with, you know, the services that you provide, but I really need this. And you can say, oh, that's great. I have someone that can help you with that, right? Um, but it's taking that, taking that time. I'm so glad you highlighted the importance of celebrating what's already there and what's what's working and what's really good because a celebration is a huge part of progress of any kind. I mean, even celebrating the the baby steps of progress is crucial. And I think sometimes we feel like progress is linear and if anything changes, then we're back to square one, but that's just not how progress works. That's like simply not it. Right. Right. Absolutely. A absolutely. I think there's that, there's that one, you know, kind of meme that goes around is the way that I thought it was going to go. And it's a straight line. And then the way that it actually went and it's like up and down and swirls and around and that's life, right? That is life. Nobody predicted in February of 2020, nobody predicted what March was going to look like you know, what June was going to look like, what September was going to look like, like, you know, all of our best laid plans and we have them, we all have to learn to adapt and to change. And when we talk about resilience, they have found that the, the number one quality that people have and that are resilient is that they are able to adapt and they are able to change and be flexible. And that actually is that kind of number one character that's found in people in resilience. Um, and if that is the case, that means that, um, that we have to allow for other people to go through that process of ad adapting and changing and flexing maybe multiple times. <laughs> till they can get to a place where it sticks, right? Till they're strong enough that that um, becomes their norm. And as you're talking about the ups and downs of life and resilience, which are experiences, I mean, resilience and life holding a lot of twists and turns are two things that are part of literally every human experience. And still we think, oh, I'm the only one whose life went that way, or uh, everybody else is, they're all making it. And I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's so silly. And it's so easy to think that way. And I think it's especially prominent during the pandemic. When you hear people talk about how everybody else is doing fine, and they're not, it's like, well, you're here in this pandemic. So you're that means you're resilient. <laughs> you're adapting your life to something totally unknown. I think that's one of my favorite things about pan about the pandemic is that we have actually seen people being people. <laughs> We've seen humans being humans, right? Like when you walked into a conference room pre-pandemic for a meeting, everybody was all done up. They were in their business attire. They had it all together. They walked into the meeting. They did this. Well, now we're on 
<laughs> virtual and we have children walking in the backgrounds. We have, you know what I mean? Dogs barking and it has made people human. And we've been able to see, oh, we are all human <laughs> and we all have, you know, these kinds of effects. And I think that's where we come back to the, you're sharing the stories too, is that piece of understanding, because you're right, we all think, and honestly, that's a, that's a trauma response. Um, thinking that we're the only ones who are going through it is, um, is natural. Um, but when we can, the power of understanding that we're not the only ones can never be downplayed, never be downplayed. Yes. And I'm so glad you just said that because earlier I was talking about the experience of hearing a story and saying, oh, I had no idea, but what's just as powerful is, oh, you too? Mm -hmm. I didn't know there was anyone else who felt that way. Mm -hmm. Angie, I'd love for you to, I mean, you've, you've mentioned resilience and its role in recovery and in navigating life as a human person. And I know that connection is a really big piece of resilience. So I think it'd just be great if you could if you could speak to how we can support loved ones who are in recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, you know, that's been such a, that's such a key piece um, of having that family support. And it's really hard. And I understand because I've been on the family side and I've been, you know, on the substance use disorder side, right? Um, and it has been framed for years, um, you know, that we, need to let them hit rock bottom. And in the same vein, we also say that it's a disease, but we have, we would never treat anyone with, you know, type one di diabetes or heart disease who isn't following, you know, type two, I should say type two diabetes and heart disease, who isn't following their doctor recommended guidelines of what their health and their diet and their exercise should be if they end up having a heart attack or if they end up having, um, you know, uh, symptoms <clears throat> regarding that, we would never say, well, you know, um, I guess they just didn't want it bad enough. But yet we do that with substance use disorder on a, on a regular basis. And, um, and I just think when you're really struggling, what is it, what would you like? And you would like somebody who understands the support, right, care connection. But as a family member, we also have to keep ourselves self-safe also. And so the boundaries need to be in place and boundaries need to be in place to keep ourselves safe and keep them safe, um, right, from themselves. But the power of being able to accept them where they're at as hard as that is. And believe me, I, having a daughter who struggles, um, I completely and totally understand the, the worry um, and the strength that it takes to allow them to find their own place while also supporting their health and wellness, right? And supporting your own health and health and wellness. Um, but we can't underscore um, how important it is to be met with love and caring and knowing that we have um, a safety net um, to fall into, right? And that doesn't mean that, oh, something is wrong and <clears throat> you always have to be there to pick up the pieces. That's not it or to do it themselves. 
you know, we don't build self-esteem and we don't build resilience by somebody telling us that we're great. <laughs> I wish it worked that way. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't. We have to experience failures and success. And it is that whole failures, success, failures, you know, getting back up again, failures, getting back up again, failures, success thing, you know, that whole routine that, that builds it. Being able to have that kind of support next to us as we continue to go through that failures, um, you know, or just life in general, um, that that's really, that's really important. Also finding support for yourself. If you have a, um, if you have a loved one who's struggling, finding others who are going through the same thing or who actually understand and are not, you know, judgmental about it, um, you know, ha are able to support you is absolutely crucial um, because you can't pour from an empty cup. We all know that we say it, but we don't follow it, <laughs> right? Especially when it's a loved one um, because we get kind of consumed with it. Um, but it is, but it is true. And if, and um, as much as especially parents um, would like to think, you know, do as I say, not as I do, your children will do as you do, <laughs> not as you say. Modeling is incredibly important. And so um, being able to model what that emotional regulation, what um, healthy coping skills look like, what healthy boundaries look like, um, and what taking care of yourself looks like is, is really important in those times. That was a really beautiful way of summarizing that. I, oh. I really appreciate hearing your perspective on that. Thank you. I'm wondering if there are any resources that have been particularly helpful to you or to others that you know in navigating those boundaries and, and balancing the care for yourself and your loved one. Yeah, the, um, for parents who have children who have substance use disorder, um, it used to be called Partnership for um, Drug-Free Kids. It's now um, Center on Addiction, but the partnership still has, and they're called the partnership now, um, still has resources for parents. Um, they, they're the book, uh, it's through Center for Motivation and Change. And they, they talk about, you know, how you can support. They also have parent peers that they do a parent coaching program, which is, you know, really great to be able to find that information. SAMHSA has really good information out there also on trauma-informed care. And really all of this, you know, we trauma-informed care has been kind of a buzzword, but really just to bring it all down and what it is, it is really meeting somebody where they're at and looking at them and saying not what is wrong with you, but what has happened to you. And um, how can I best be of support to you? Um, and so SAMHSA has a lot of great information on what that looks like, especially in the behavioral health um, locations. Meditation, um, finding, being able to have a one other parent that I could vent to and talk about all of those things were incredibly important to you. 
um, important to me. Um, there are parent support groups that are out there that are really good. Um, palgroup.org is one of them. Um, they have locations all across the United States, um, but they're looking for um, support groups um, like that are really are really good to just kind of have that common that common bond um, there when you're talking about um, you know parents um, and understanding substance use disorder you know understanding and um, some of the good books on that are chasing the screen by Johan Hari um, unbroken brain by um, Maya, oh, I, can, I will not butcher her name for posterity. It's called Unbroken Brain. <laughs> um, you know, really looking at it through a brain-based understanding instead of a moral failing lens. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. I could not let this opportunity to interview you go without talking about Sesame Street. Um, Arizona Recovers is a partner with Sesame Street in communities, and you've been engaged in that partnership during the pandemic. So for our listeners who are unfamiliar, can you tell us about the Muppet Carly and what her presence on Sesame Street means to families impacted by addiction? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I mean, who wouldn't want to talk about Sesame Street, period? <laughs> I just read about, just read another um, new Muppets that they're introducing. Anyway, they're amazing. Um, Sesame Street has a, um, has a part of their organization called Sesame Street and Communities, which has a plethora of um, information on there from just about every topic that you could possibly think of. Um, to talk to children about, whether you're talking about school readiness, oral health, um, then they take on really heavy conversations too, like grief and loss, parental incarceration. Um, and then in the past few years, they introduced um, resources on traumatic experiences and parental addictions. And Carly was a Muppet that was um, introduced a couple years ago. Um, she was when she was introduced, she was in foster care and her mother had, uh, her mother was in treatment for substance use disorder. Subsequently, her mother has gotten into recovery and Carly has been able to move back with her and now she lives with her, but they still tackle the issue of parental addiction and recovery, um, reoccurrence of use and traumatic experiences um, and such. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, Sesame Street and Communities particularly works with different communities across um, the United States and um, through funding from the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation, they expanded in 2020 to three more uh, communities, Baltimore, Maryland, Miami, Florida, and um, Maricopa County in Arizona, which is Phoenix, Phoenix Metro where we're at. And um, we were incredibly blessed to be able to partner with them to deliver um, information, you know, to the rest of the community that these resources exist, first of all, um, but also able to bring that conversation into um, our work for parents. Um, I've done a lot of work in prevention, and I've always, I've it has always driven me a little mad that we don't ever address parents as far as that first sign of prevention in this way. 
people with substance use disorder, um, if they have children already, their children already have one adverse childhood experience. Having an adverse childhood experience in a child's life makes them more susceptible to developing a substance use disorder as they get older. The stats are, you know, very crystal clear on all of that. Um, but yet we don't have conversations to parents of how do we talk to our children about what addiction is, um, you know, and, um, and the supports that we kind of need around it. And so what we're able to do with our partnership is they have resources to be able to talk to that, that age demographic. You know, we're always like, well, we'll talk to them when they're older. Um, but kids are incredibly smart and they know when something is wrong. And usually when we don't tell them what's wrong, they're going to think that it's them. Just that is natural what children will do. And so with this partnership, we're able to take those resources and really have good courageous conversations with children of, you know, what substance use disorder is um, and give them resources on um, gaining coping and life skills. Um, you know, they have a book called, and these resources are online at ssic.org, um, but they have a book called The Comfy Cozy Nest, and they have an activity that you can do online with it, where it's Big Bird talking about being upset, and Alan um, tells him that he imagines, you know, his um, kind of safe place, and Big Bird decides that it's going to be his comfy, cozy nest that he um, imagines, that that's going to be his place that he feels good in. And kids can go and put different um, objects in their personal comfy, cozy nest, right, to help teach that meditation piece to younger children, but also that regulation um, piece to them. And so there's a lot of tools and games and then also um, you know, resources, providers, and caregivers, articles, um, how to have those conversations um, and actual actionable items that you can do. And I mean, they're all Sesame Street characters and what kid doesn't connect with a Sesame Street character? Um, so it's, yeah, it's been a really great um, opportunity and it's, um, it's really awesome in that when we're talking about that listening shame piece, when you have, you know, somebody that is, on a very well-respected, you know, show that they can uh, they can see it in a light of um, maybe to to have that piece of oh I never thought of it from that perspective right never thought of it that way. Sesame Street in communities is so awesome. <laughs> I am I am such a fan, and I love that you've been involved with it, and I. I just think it's so important that just the, these really incredible resources and ways to learn are being shared truly with people of all ages. And I really encourage everyone listening to check those out and I'll link them in the show notes. But, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about the concept of community parenting. So everyone, even if you're not a parent, I encourage you to give it a look because it's just so cool. So Angie, what has, what has that looked like during the pandemic? Cause you, I think you said that it came around for your County in 2020. <laughs> so you get this incredible opportunity and then in-person connections are shut down. So tell me about that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that was, um, you know, typically when um, Sesame Street and Communities comes to a new community, they do a big, you know, in-person event, um, which we were all unable to do. Um, and so we did a virtual event. What they did was they actually taped a 30-minute resiliency special, which you can find on YouTube and you can find on their Facebook page. Um, to really discuss resiliency. And then what they did was they took the individual topics and put that into the resiliency um, video, which was absolutely amazing. Um, we've been focusing on doing things virtually, right? So whether that be um, webinars discussing the um, individual resources, um, we still do in-person services even during um, COVID. So, um, you know, we've taken all of the COVID precautions and um, we do meet virtually, but we also meet, you know, some in person and then looking at other ways of getting some of that messaging out. And so using the emergency room and um, giving the materials to um, the patients there that um, could use it. So we've just, we've just had to be creative, right? This year has been adapting and flexing, has it not? I'm sure we're all tired of um, saying those words. Yes, yes, we are. <laughs> but it's the truth. And I, you know, I, I love what you said earlier about having those courageous conversations and creative uh, work in how you're getting this to people. And it's really special that it's continued to have an impact in this time, yeah. perhaps more than it would have before, because we all need it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that COVID has really done that nothing else could have. And that is understanding how connected we are as people. And, and, and that trauma is something and toxic stress is something that everybody is susceptible to and everybody faces at some time in their lives. Absolutely. You beautifully shared some of the resources that people could look to if they're trying to support a loved one in recovery. I'm wondering if there are any avenues for learning or tools or resources that you recommend for people who are wanting to get engaged in their communities in work that's similar to the work that you're doing. So in, in a way that's a little bit more formal, I guess, than the person-to-person the -person familial connection. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there are organizations all across um, the United States that perform services um, like we do. Uh, the recovery community organizations, um, Faces and Voices of Recovery, um, has a map of recovery community organizations that you can find that are, um, you know, across the United States. If you're looking for places to volunteer, if you're looking places to do peer support, um, if you're looking just for that kind of connection, the majority of RCOs also do community events and a lot of them do um, policy work um, and, um, and advocacy work in their own personal states. Um, the Recovery Advocacy Project is a great um, is a great place. Every state has their they're all also their own state lead um, there. So if you're really looking at that kind of bringing the community together and and building up the recovery capital of the community, 
um, and in the way of advocacy, that is a great um, location to look for a resource in your own state. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. I love any endorsement of looking at policy because yeah. it's crucial to literally everything. And sometimes we overlook it in our desire to lend a hand directly, which is an important part of service, but man, that policy piece matters. I think, you know what though, I think that we look at it as um, that there's nothing that we can do about it. That policy is set in stone and policy is not ever set in stone. You know, every policy has been, you know, made by very well-intentioned people. And if we, we understand that we all do the best we can with the knowledge we have at the time, maybe the knowledge that they had at the time was just not completely understanding the effects of that policy and everything has unintentional consequences, right? Like we, yeah, um, it's, it's, um, and, and I think it's that hopelessness or that powerlessness that we feel that we can't do anything. But I can tell you, I have seen amazing things being done um, by just a few people and that have gotten really, um, policies that meant to do good, but that had inadvertently hurt a lot of people, I have seen them changed. And um, with just a very small vocal group of people. And so um, it's kind of why I always push for it. I think people think that it's out of their reach, but it is not. Finding your voice and sharing yeah. your story and making a change at a policy level. <laughs> There you go. That's it. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, well, Angie, I've so appreciated um, our time together. And I have just one more question, which is the one that we ask everybody. And that's what does the process of awareness to action mean to you? Oof, it means everything to me. We can't do anything about what we don't know. And um that process, you know, I always tell my kids that the day that you stop, stop learning is the day that you start dying because, you know, there, there's so much in this world that we could never know at all, ever. Um, and things change and wow, do they change so rapidly in these days, right? And that pro but process of awareness to action is... Um, being open to always learning something new and understanding how that may not just affect you, but how it may affect others. Um, and, and then doing the next right thing. Amazing. Thank I you. I love that. Angie, thank you so, so, so much for sharing your story with us and, and your perspective and the work that you're doing. It, it all feels so important. And I, I just feel like you've shared a lot of reminders that are really crucial right now as we all continue navigating this pandemic and, you know, granting ourselves grace and accepting the people around us where they're at. I just, I really appreciate everything you've shared. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I've linked all the resources that Angie and I discussed in the episode description. A huge thank you to Angie for a great conversation. 
As always, make sure to subscribe to Awareness to Action so you can keep up to date with all of our future episodes. 